Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, recording live from our Podstream studios here in Times Square. Folks, I have made it a point over all of last week to discuss the crisis that is unfolding at the border. I wrote a piece in Zora Magazine about why America owes the people of Haiti better than what they are doing. I want to bring you up to speed right now where we have learned that over 2,000 Haitians have been deported in the last week back to Port-au-Prince. What we know is that the country is politically ravaged, is being essentially run by bunches of gangs that who the Americans want to anoint as the next prime minister is not someone that the people actually want. But that doesn't stop America from inserting its foot, inserting itself into foreign affairs that, frankly, it has no business being a part of. What is troubling to me, what continues to be troubling to me, is that I don't know about you, but... How many more decades are we going to hear about a broken immigration system without there being an actual solve to it? And it seems to me that every single Congress and every single administration continues to kick the can down the road for some other administration and Congress to pick up. What's unfortunate, however, is that our Congress is filled with a bunch of the same motherfuckers that have been there since, like, the beginning of time. I shit you not. Senator Grassley has decided at the ripe old age of 88 that he's going to run for re-election. The man has been in elected office since the 19-fucking-50s. 
So we wonder when we turn around and we say, how come we don't have any new policies? How come we don't have any fresh ideas? Well, if I'm looking at the average age of those that are sitting in the fucking Senate right now, I'm looking at what? A bunch of septenarians or like octanagerians? Like it's ridiculous where we are. And, you know, here's the other thing. And I mentioned this last week is when Yamiche Alessandor asked Jen Psaki whether or not the president of the United States was going to speak directly about the tragedy that we are witnessing unfold at the border. She said, well, he speaks through me. He speaks through other people. He may speak on his own. And I'm saying to myself, when we set up a situation where we have people justifying whether or not what was used by the Texas fucking border patrol is a whip or is it horse reins? And I don't need to go through with white people and unpack and dissect brutality with you. When you want me to not believe my eyes, but to believe your continual lying ass mouths. And I'm calling out this administration because they have considerably fucked this up in I mean, the epic proportions of fuckery that is happening at the border right now is insane. And, you know, I could probably be maybe just as angry or angrier if it had been a Trump administration, but I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't feel like I was caught out. But that's exactly how I feel with this administration. And then they want to make an announcement at the end of last week where they tell us that, oh, For the time being, the Department of Homeland Security is going to what? Suspend the use of horses as if the horses were the fucking problem. They weren't, right? It wasn't the horse that was the problem. I believe that it's the men that are riding the horse and their attachment and love affair to white supremacy and the feeling that they get to live out their cowboy fantasies right? That that is actually the problem. So how do you suspend that exactly? How do you enforce humanity for people that do not see people that do not have the same skin color as them as being human? How do you legislate depravity out of people? What is fucking frustrating to me and continues to be frustrating, is the fact that we just continue to ignore racism in this country and how it plays a part literally in everything that we do. No one has been fired from Border Patrol. Nobody from DHS has lost their job. And in a couple of days, those pictures will cease to have the impact that they did last week. And we will move on to the next crisis, to the next problem. Continuing to kick this can down the street again. But when I look at the faces of those Haitian migrants, when I look at their children's faces, you see, because I have a heart, Because I believe in values of morality and humanization for all that I don't have to, right, articulate my humanity. I shouldn't have to plead for it by virtue of my birth, right? I should be provided with 
the basics. But that is not how this country is set up. We don't even do that for our own goddamn citizens, let alone those that still think that America is the better place to be than the place that they are coming from, which I say, wow, you know, cause the place that you're fleeing clearly has to be on fire, underwater, you know, under siege for you to think in this day and age that America is your safe Harbor at a time when our democracy is hanging on by a goddamn thread and Republicans and Democrats alike continue to act like all is okay. It is like we are living in that active meme with the dog that is sitting at the table drinking the coffee. Everything is fine, but the entire fucking room is on fire. You know, the reality is that we care very little for black people in this country. We care even less for black people in other countries. But when they show up in mass on shore and not are not even heard, do you understand that their cases, their pleas are not even being heard because this administration has decided to continue title 42, which was developed under Trump and used under Trump as a way to expeditiously, right? Get rid of people that you don't want without having to justify a hearing. And then for those people who underneath my posts on social media love to tell me, oh, well, they're all bringing in COVID and, you know, what about COVID? The fuck? I would love to, you know, fence off Tennessee, but we can't fucking do that. You want to be concerned about COVID? Why don't you be concerned about the red state governors that are allowing the virus to run rampant because they're weaponizing it? Talk to me about that. Don't talk to me about people that are fleeing violence and hunger and despair trying to come here. We have a country that is flush with vaccines. Haiti does not. Right? They don't have the infrastructure for it. We do in the United States and we can't even convince the people down the fucking street to get one without putting in a vaccine mandate that says, guess what? You can't go anywhere as the seasons change because everywhere indoors is going to require a vaccine. At least that's how it looks in New York. That sure as fuck is not how it looks everywhere else. Coming up next friends is going to be my conversation with our expert who is going to talk to us about this immigration problem, where we go, about this broken system and whether or not we are going to be able to do anything about it in the months and years to come. Folks, I am very happy to welcome to the show for the first time, Kevin Johnson, who is the Dean of the University of California Davis School and co-author of the book, Immigration Law and Social Justice. You know, one of the things that I brought up in a piece that I wrote last week, which was entitled, America Owes the Haitian People More. And what I did was go through historical analysis of what the United States' part has been in creating economic and political instability in Haiti. And what I think, and you know, you tell me if I'm wrong or don't have the full enough picture, is I feel like the problem that we have when we're discussing immigration as a whole mm. is that we're not really asking why these countries 
are in shambles in the way that they are and what part the United States and global indifference has had in them being in such disarray. And so when we look at, you know, the influx, whether it is coming from Mexico, Central America, from Haiti, from countries that have had disruptive governments and basically, you know, paltry economic viability, that we don't look at the policies that we have allowed that created those situations or the ways in which we got to cherry pick political leaders that were not chosen in a democratic fashion. And yet we go around the world and we Bigfoot and say that we're here, right? Because we're going to be, you know, the valiant knights that are going to provide democracy for you. And yet we're choosing leaders. We're doing this right now after the assassination of the prime minister in Haiti. We're trying to back another leader that the people are saying we don't want. And so is there or should there be more conversation, not of talking about the people that arrive as the problem, but rather the policies that we have championed mm -hmm. that allowed for these people to be in such a desperate situation? Yeah. No, I think you're exactly right. Um, we we as, the, as a nation tend to view immigration as a continuing series of crises. Uh, you know, it's, you know, Cubans are coming, uh, you know, Haitians are coming, Mexicans are coming, Muslims are coming. Uh, and how do we protect ourselves from the crisis? Uh, we don't uh, interrogate uh, why people are migrating. Uh, we could say, well, what was our United States government role in um, propping up a dictatorial Haitian um, series of presidents uh, that led to mass poverty, violence, political unrest, uh, and uh, all the way up to today, leading to the situation we see today. We, we, uh, we, we tend not to focus on that. Uh, you can look at uh, Mexico. Well, why are so many Mexican migrants coming? Um, part of it is economic. And you could say, well, look what NAFTA did. Uh, NAFTA was a trade agreement it benefited big farmers in Mexico. Small farmers became poorer, uh, left their land, and were co are coming to the United States. Uh, so that the you know economic dislocation created by NAFTA, which we championed, that led to uh, the migration streams we see today. Uh, propping up uh, dictators in El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras, um, and it, it have, have had the same impacts. Our policies toward Cuba uh, is, is, is led to migration that so we've had to deal with at various points in time. Uh, it, but we, we don't say, um, gosh, what was our role in, in these migrations? We say, how do we stop them? Uh, and the truth of the matter is, is that you reduce migration in the long run um, by not propping up dictatorial regimes, not making countries poorer, uh, but helping them richer. The, the long-term solution to migration, really, and I do think the Biden administration has is, is, is voiced this, these, these words and actually sending uh, Vice President Harris to Central America to meet with the leaders. Her focus was on long-term solutions. The long-term solutions to migration, um, if you're worried about too many people coming or your view that too many people are coming, the long-term solution is uh, economic prosperity and political right. stability. Uh, mm -hmm. 
most of the world, 95% of the world dies within 100 miles where it was born. Most people want to stay home. Most people are more comfortable with, with their language, their culture, uh, their community, uh, and their country. Uh, people leave when uh, conditions are such that, uh, and they leave in large numbers when conditions are such where it's, where it's untenable to stay home. Uh, so if, if we're really interested in decreasing migration pressures from around the world, uh, providing economic support, political support, uh, and thinking uh, the long game, uh, not how do we stop these people from coming, is what you have to do. The, the problem with that, uh, and I, I'm not saying it's an insurmountable problem, uh, is that um, uh, we tend to be reactive when it comes to migration. Mm -hmm. We also tend not to want to spend money on foreign countries um, um, in, in building their institutions um, because it's too difficult for us to understand uh, the link between if they're strong, we're better off. Um, and and it's, it, it is costly, but what the policies we've had in Central America have, have devastated those countries. And that's why you're seeing many Central Americans coming. You can look at Haiti, uh, you can look at Mexico, uh, you look at Venezuela, look at Cuba. Um, you know, it's, and those are countries that are close to us. So you can expect larger numbers of people coming too. Uh, it's easier to do. I want to focus for a second on what you said with regard to how you stop mass migration, right? Is economic investment, right? Into the countries and communities that we've affected with whether the support or the propping up of dictators. I want to look at the last 20 years in Afghanistan for a moment. And the fact that, you know, for 20 years, the United States was in this country, spent, oh, I don't know, depending on, on some reports, anywhere between eight and $21 billion over the course of 20 years. And within a matter of weeks, the entire infrastructure of the country collapses. And now we're opening, supposedly opening our doors, according to this administration, to 95,000 Afghans that have been displaced because of our intervening in a country that many say, and I personally believe that we had no business being in to begin with, without a clear entrance and a clear exit strategy. What are the lessons to learn from the money, lives, and time wasted in this particular part of the world, what are the lessons that you think that we can learn from Afghanistan that we shouldn't be copycatting in other nation states? So seemingly, I agree with you with regard to the investments that need to be made into areas that we have torpedoed in a lot of different, in a lot of different ways over many decades. What lessons can we take from what happened in Afghanistan and not model? Yeah, well, uh, I think uh, spending billions on war trying to force something on people that, that may not want it uh, isn't going to give you the stability or the economic growth that's necessary. I'm not saying uh, that we should have supported the Taliban, uh, but I do think that the idea of conducting war like in Vietnam, like in Afghanistan, uh, given the, res the popular resistance, um, without building institutions, without supporting communities, uh, it isn't going to work. Um, because, I mean, throwing in a war machine, propping things up, 
uh, isn't going to necessarily transform the hearts and minds of the people people of the country. Uh, and, and, and I think that what we can, can learn is that um, spending money on helping people build their own institutions as opposed to imposing institutions on them or, or trying to impress upon them they should adopt American ways somehow isn't going to necessarily work. Uh, but, but I think that the primary focus on, on war um, into, into, quote, liberating uh, the, these, these countries uh, you know, uh, isn't, isn't, isn't going to work in the long run. The hearts and minds of the people uh, have to be committed to, to change uh, and to the building of institutions. And it strikes me that what happened in Afghanistan is we, we spent a lot on war, not so much on, um, you know, building those ins durable institutions that are going to be able to, to remain in place uh, after we left. Uh, and, um, uh, there are other factors involved, I think. Um, but to me, um, you know, a, a 20-year war with um, you know, many more casualties on, you know, on their side than on our side, but an awful lot of casualties on our side too, um, it shows that uh, there are limits to what you can do uh, through, through the, the pointing of a gun. Mm. Mm. You know, another thing too that I find really frustrating again, you know, and you began and have peppered throughout this conversation talking about racism, right? And, you know, illuminating that many of the policies, right? I, I won't say all because I don't know all of them, but many of them are steeped in racism and classism, right? What Donald Trump famously said, we only want the best people, you know, why can't we get people that are coming from Norway, right? Seemingly, you know, white and middle or an upper class, right? Was the connotation behind uh, that racist statement. But Donald Trump said out loud what many people in the United States believe, right? Democrats and Republicans alike. Is there a way, right, to create immigration policy that isn't steeped in racism that isn't about oh well if you're coming from you know from chile as opposed to from venezuela or colombia you're better right mm -hmm. if you can show us that you're coming here on a work visa or a college visa oh that's the kind of immigrant that we want is there a way to create a system because let's be frank that there isn't a system in this nation that wasn't created from racist ideals, right? So is there a way with everything that we know now to detach ourselves from racism and classism, particularly at a time when people don't even want to acknowledge reality, that it exists? No, I, I think that that's you know, another good point. You know, systemic racism affects all aspects of US society, from the education system, the voting system, the health system, and, and, and criminal justice system, obviously. Um, the, the, the first thing, uh, if you're really interested in, in removing that racism, uh, is, you know, awareness that it exists. Uh, and we have been in, as a nation, have been in denial. We're, we're not racist. The, you know, the, the immigration laws are colorblind and race neutral. They don't discriminate. Uh, but, you know, when you look at how things operate on the ground, you look at those pictures along the border, uh, how could you not see that racism is is um, infecting it? When you see you know, the 
poor um, um, brown woman uh, being separated from her, her, her brown child uh, who's crying, how can you not see that racism is involved? When 90% of the people removed every year are Latino, and most of those are removed because of, of problems they had with our criminal justice system, which we know uh, engages in race-based law enforcement, how can we not realize that, that, that racism infects the system? I think that we, um, in all aspects of our society, are in a profound sense of denial that racism exists and infects our institutions. Now, there's one place where I think that we could help, or the Supreme Court could help, and maybe it's not this court, but- um, um, <laughs> I like how you said just, you're like, the court could help, but not this one, maybe one down the road. That is it for today's Woke AF Daily Podcast. To hear more from me, including five full hour-long shows every single week, exclusive guest interviews, and more, support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash woke AF. Power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.